First Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to conclude the topic that we have here in the first 11 verses, which is the day of the Lord. First Thessalonians 5, Paul is addressing the church, and he's addressing the church regarding uh, the end. And he's making a contrast here to what he said in chapter 4 at the end there in verses 13 through 18. And in that, he goes on kind of concerning the uselessness of probing any kind of particular time of Christ's coming. And as we'll see, that sudden and terrible thing that is really going to come upon those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what a comfort it is for us who are found in Christ. And so there's even an exhortation here to the church. And the exhortation to the church, uh, beloved, is in calling them and calling us to obedient, to, to be watchful. Uh, obedience in our watchfulness, as it were. Alert, um, exercising the call to faith and love and hope and being what really we should attend to. Let's pray before we read, shall we? Father, thank and praise you so much. For your word before us, we pray it's work in our hearts and our minds, our lives, Lord. Embed these truths deep into our souls, that we would glorify and honor you in all we do and say. Thank you, Lord, in advance for the work you'll do. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, the destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So let us not uh, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. Marvelous words. As we kind of began to see last time, the topic of the day of the Lord really drenches us into a vast amount of text, a vast amount of literature. In particular, in the Old Testament, there are multiple times we saw some of them. The Old Testament is just filled with discussion about the day of the Lord. Uh, The prophets stood, and what did they do? They stood, and as not just under the unction, but under the direction of the Holy Spirit, they revealed great epics in the destiny of the uh, race of mankind, if we could say it that way. And they had a phrase, they had a phrase that would be used regularly, they called it the day of judgment, they called it the day of wrath, the day of visitation, a day of visitation from heaven, perdition, uh, damnation of the ungodly, uh, and they did called it the day of the Lord as well. Go over to Revelation chapter 6 for a moment, we want to read a text there. There's no place in the Old Testament... Uh, nor in the New Testament, for that matter, where that phrase refers to anything other than the day of wrath. There, it means nothing other than that. It means nothing other than the day of judgment of the ungodly. It means nothing other than the judgment of the Almighty God. And, and even Paul referenced that in Romans 2.5. If you would turn to Revelation 6, though, while you're turning there, Paul says, as a reminder there, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So Paul is even indicating that day coming as well. But I want you to look what John says in Revelation chapter 6. It's significant. Pick up in verse 15. We'll read several verses there. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide from us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. By the way, an interesting contrast there, isn't a lamb with wrath? You ever thought about that picture? Amazing, isn't it? And then, but look at verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? We've heard the fundamental truth before, and Paul is making that clear here in a different way, but we've kind of said, and maybe you have said this, and we have said this at times, but there's basically two groups of people on the earth. There are those that who are saved and those who are unsaved. There are those who are redeemed and those who are unredeemed, even at the present time. Some of the unredeemed will be redeemed, praise God. But there will still be a remnant, and there will still be a vast number of those who really are heading down the broad road leading to destruction, and many will find that, but few find the road of life. And narrow is that way. The entire human race, and Paul shows us this, are really divided into two groups. He uses some contrast here, and that's really what we're going to see this morning. And you have night and day people. I'm not talking to anybody who is a night owl. And I'm sure if my, I'm sure my wife is watching as well. I'm not talking about her being a night owl either. But what we're looking at are people who are associated with darkness, associated with slumber, with drunkenness, associated with, uh, those things that are kind of contrasted against another group of people. And those are the people of the day. Again, not referring to sleep patterns, but <laughs> referring to the contrast here. What is the uh, opposite association there? Well, that is of, uh, instead of night, it's of day. Instead of darkness, it's of light. It's of soberness, not drunkenness. And he's showing really that distinction between believers and, un- and unbelievers, between the redeemed and the unredeemed. And so he's doing that as one who possesses salvation and one who does not possess salvation. And the purpose in this text, the goal, really, what he has for you and for me this morning, beloved, which he has in mind primarily, is to meet the need of the Thessalonian believers and us who may be worried or anxious or nervous about the future. We've had a lot to be anxious over the last year and a half, haven't we? (laughs) Some of us got more anxious than others. Some of us learned, based on the last 15 or 16 months, not to be anxious about anything. God even used that in some of our lives to teach us not to be anxious about anything, but in all things, trust in him. And for some reason, this church became very concerned about being secure in the future, and they became very concerned about it to the point that the Apostle Paul has some things to say concerning the coming of Christ. And having been given some information about the day of the Lord, they continue to be worried. In fact, some of them may have come along and confused them. Some people may have come along the Ignatius way and tried to undermine some of the things that Paul had taught them in the three weeks or so that he had been with them. So there might be some questions in their mind that Paul wants to answer as he writes this letter to them. Certainly no doubt there were questions that were brought to him by Timothy because Timothy had visited, made a report, came back to him when he visited the church shortly thereafter. And so You take in light of those concerns that they had, and then you've got the beloved Apostle Paul here who is kind of set in the inspired text answers to the questions. The one thing that is important, and that is living in light of his return. By the way, this letter is basically just that. It teaches us to live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. And so why? What's the purpose of why he writes this to calm their fears? Well, that's why at the end of chapter 4 he says, in verse 18, to comfort one another with these words. Uh, same thing in verse 11. If you look at our text, jump down to verse 11. He says, therefore, encourage. You see that? It's the exact same verb, by the way, he uses there that he uses at the end of chapter 4 when he talks about comfort. Exact same verb in the Greek. And it's translated here, encourage. There it's translated comfort. So comforting and encouraging this kind of has the same uh, connotation, same meaning. And he's really writing all of this to not just comfort and encourage them, but to strengthen them. It's written to strengthen you and me. 
written to strengthen us as a church. Paul is saying your future is secure. He's saying be comforted, be encouraged, be strengthened by that. But he does this in a series of contrasts, and he, and he points out our security really through a whole series of contrasts. Let me just give you some of them. This text, he contrasts the catching up with the day of the Lord. He uses the concept of salvation and wrath, of life and death, of blessing and cursing, of hope and no hope, of day and night, of darkness and light, being asleep, being awake, being drunk, being sober, being separated from God, being with him forever. And so this whole series of contrasts unfolds in this passage, and it's kind of a multifaceted description of really what we would say is the complete and total division between believers and unbelievers and the implications of that division in the lives of each of them. Each group has has basically uh, consequences. But the consequences for you and I as believers, consequences are marvelous. They're, they're going to be incredible. And, and so any fear or worry or fretting or nervous about anything that's going on, anything that may or may not come in the future, any discomforting of the believer who might be concerned with his or her future can really look at this text. And there's many other texts that we can look at as well where our fears are, are calmed. The, the, the storms in our hearts can be laid to rest. Our fears can be put down. We have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear if we're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you have everything to fear. Everything. And if you're not in Christ, then the book title applies to you, Your Best Life Now. That only applies to unbelievers. I don't even know how that could be considered a book written to Christians. And so there's a tremendous and a complete contrast between these two groups. We saw three aspects last time, or two aspects last time. We're going to pick up the third this morning because we saw verse 1 and 2 where uh, there's the promise of this coming. It's coming, no doubt about it. But then we looked at the character of this. We looked at passages from the Old Testament and New Testament alike, and we kind of looked at those uh, things regarding the makeup of those who are or are not immune from the wrath of God. And let me just suggest to you this morning that in these contrasts, there are three of them this morning, and these three perspectives, these three directions, if we could say it that way, uh, really bring out kind of the distinctiveness of the two different groups. And really, what what is else unique about this, beloved, and this is really encouraging, is because we are secure from him from any future judgment. That's what we have to, that's what we have right now in the here and now. We don't have to worry about that future judgment if we're found in Christ. We are distinct or different, first of all, because of our nature. We've been granted a new nature. We, we've granted a new creation. The old things have passed away, new things have come. We're different or we're distinct, secondly, because of our behavior. And he's going to point that out as well. But we're also different and distinct, thirdly, because of our future, our destiny, our hope. And that's because we have a distinct nature manifesting itself in a distinct behavior that leads to a distinct destiny, as one commentator put it. We have nothing to fear. Pick up in verse 4. Let's look at the contrast of this in our nature. Verse 4, as we begin looking at this in detail, he says, but you, and by the way, there's the there's the contrast in the conjunction, but, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Do you see that? That contrast is made simply and very direct. Very, very simple. You don't have to be a Greek theologian to understand that at all. We're not going to have any part in the day of the Lord. Plain and simple. We're not going to have any part in the future judgments of God and or his wrath because we are unique people. We are different. We are what? We're the called out ones. We're the ecclesia. And look at verse 3. While they... Now, now this is where you want to make sure you understand those pronouns and what's being applied there. While they are saying, 
peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. They, them, they, important contrast because in verse 4 he begins by saying, but you brethren. That's the difference. That's the, that's the line of difference right there. And so in contrast to them, you're not in darkness. You're not going to be in the night when the thief comes. You're not part of the darkness. And so he uses that word brethren there to really identify you and me of where we belong. He identifies that for us as the church. We won't experience the day of the Lord. And that contrast, by the way, in the Greek, it's forceful. It's very forceful. And Paul draws it all the way down, by the way, through verse 7, even into verse 8. Believers are not going to experience the wrath of God. They're never going to experience this sudden destruction. They're never going to experience the day of the Lord or the fury of God. Why? Because, as Paul says in Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. None. There is no condemnation. Why? Because that is seen in the distinction of our character as well. You're not in darkness. You don't belong to the darkness. You don't belong to the night. In other words, you don't belong to Satan's domain. You're not part of his crew. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the domain of light. And what does that refer to? Well, he's talking about spiritual darkness, right? He's talking about that spiritual darkness that characterizes and marks the nature of unbelievers. It's really twofold. In fact, uh, in just breaking down this, MacArthur says, I think, very well, it simply falls into two categories. Uh, he says the darkness of mental darkness, the other of moral darkness. The darkness of ignorance on the one hand, the darkness of sin on the other. The darkness of unbelief on one hand, the darkness of rebellion on the other. And so one is the darkness of not knowing. Think about it this way. There's a darkness of not knowing, but there's also the darkness of not doing. Not knowing what is true, not doing what is right. Right? Not knowing what is true, not doing what is right. And so the heart of an unregenerate, unsaved individual is dark. It's dark. The thoughts of the unregenerate, really, they're, they're evil. That's what Moses says in Genesis 6, only evil continually. Jeremiah makes that very clear as well in Jeremiah 17.9. We quote that often. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Right? And so this reflects this darkness. Uh, turn over to Luke 6 for a moment. Luke 6, I want to show this to you. And then we're going to go to John's Gospel, John 1. Luke 6, because this is significant, uh, certainly in my mind, of what our Lord uses in this similar way. He uses this kind of in a contrasting way as well, our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 45 of Luke 6. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. But here's the contrast. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which what? Fills what? Fills what? The heart. Fills the heart. You see that? And so it's significant, and that's why Paul even said to the believers in Colossae that you have been rescued, really, you've been really kind of rescued from this domain of darkness, this entire aspect of life. You're transferred into the kingdom of his son. Go to John chapter 1, John's gospel chapter 1. And this is a beautiful illustration of this in the prologue of John. Verse 4, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it would be a better way to think about that. Go over to chapter 3, because just the opening of the Gospel of John, he's reminding you and I that the world is in darkness. Christ, the light, came, and he was the light of the world. We see that in John 8, right, when he's in the temple and it's the, the uh, outer courtyard there in Jerusalem. And he says, I am the light of the world. He, he actually screams that, believe it or not. He screams that. He says, I am the light of the world. One of the great I am statements there. And, and, and if you follow him, he says, you're not going to walk in darkness, right? But look at John 3. Jump down to verse. How, why did the uh, darkness not comprehend the light? Well, he gives us an answer in verse 19 through 21 of John 3. This is the judgment. 
that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. And so the unregenerate world, to say it that way, which is the vast majority of the world, is characterized in darkness. And you see that so clearly. Just look around you. You see that in experience all the time, don't you? You see that everywhere. You see that in how people do business with people. You see that in how people just continue to sin. There's no shame in their sin anymore. None of that. It's not, it's, it's very clear. You just have to look around. And so you don't have to be a theologian to recognize that. And that's why Paul even says in Ephesians 4 that he affirms together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in futility of their minds. And why did he, why did he say mind there? He says that's being darkened in their understanding, right? That's Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Being darkened in their understanding. What does that hint back to? That hints back to Romans chapter 1 where he gives them over and he gives them over and he gives them over and ultimately at some point they're given over to a debased or a reprobate mind. It's a mind that's completely darkened to the illumination of the light, even of the general revelation of God. And they're darkened in their understanding. And so he says there in Ephesians 4.18 that they're excluded. This This is Just think about that. That you're, that you could be excluded as a reprobate there. You're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance in them, because of the hardness of their heart. This is damning. It's an ignorant darkness. It's an immoral darkness. There's darkness because they don't know the truth. They're dark because they love wickedness. You know, it's amazing as you and I were once like that. Paul reminds us of that in Ephesians 2. But you were once like that. You were once following after the course of this world. You were a son of disobedience. You were a child of the prince of the power of the air. You were following the course after the world. It's in darkness. And the one who controls us is Satan. He's the prince of darkness. And so this entire domain of the lost, this whole domain of those who are without God, the domain of those that are without Christ, the domain of darkness. There's an ignorance and sin, a wickedness, a rebellion. It's the whole realm of the sinful fallen nature in Adam. You know what's amazing to me, though? is when he says, but you, brethren. Do you fall on that side? Do you fall on that side of the butt? That's the good side. And just think of that wonderful truth in 1 John 1. What does he tell us about our nature there? God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if you say you know God, what do you do? If you say you know God, why do you live in darkness? Because if you live in darkness, you don't know God. If that's the pattern of your life, you don't know God. But if you know God, you live in the light. Why? Because you're not night people. You don't live in mental darkness. You don't live in mental darkness. Why? Because you know the truth. And you don't live in moral darkness because you live the truth. You see. And so we have no fear. We don't have fear that that day is going to overtake us like a thief. Because the day of the Lord is going to be dark. The day of the Lord is going to be for the people of darkness. It's going to be for the night people. And the day of the Lord is not going to overtake you. It's not going to seize you. It's not going to catch you or capture you like some unwary individual who really has no clue. It's coming like those who were swept away with the flood of Noah's day. They didn't, they mocked him. They said, where's the promise of this flood? Well, you got to be kidding me. Okay, you want to build a boat? Great, build a boat. Why? I don't know. You're crazy, you old man. And they mocked him. I'm sure they said many other things. But when it comes suddenly, and this is the thing, when it comes suddenly, when it comes unexpectedly, like a thief, those in the dark, they're going to be taken captive by the terror of that time. And according to verse 3, they're going to be surprised. They're going to be surprised. They're going to be saying, peace and safety, peace and safety. And then it's going to hit. 
Jesus says, his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Luke 16, 8. And our Lord identified believers as sons of light. And even in their weakness, they're nonetheless sons of light. Because he said in John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so you may become sons of light. So there's an evangelistic invitation to come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The light of the world says, this is who I am. And for us, uh, even if you think about it in the English word, it's a bit unfamiliar. Sons of light, there's a, there's a Hebrew idiom, there's a Hebrew idea behind this uh, Greek concept, and I just want to bring it out to you, because the Hebrews used to say that a man is the son of whatever influence dominates his character. So an individual is the son of whatever the influence that dominates his or her character is, whatever influence dominates his thinking. What do you think about? What dominates your thought process? This is a good test for you and for me. What dominates your thought life? Whatever influences your character is dominated in your thought life. That's your nature. We might even say today, we might say, uh, see someone who might be uh, dissolute, for example, or, or unruly, or wild, or careless, or, or, or crazy, or whatever, and we might say that, that in, in a similar way, they're the son of a devil, right? That would be catching some sense of that idiom. By the way, back in Judges, if you look at chapter 19, verse 22, you might want to look that later, those who are characteristically wicked are called sons of Belial. Why do you think that was a blaspheming of the Holy Spirit for them to say that the deeds of Jesus during his ministry, he is acting as a, and he's doing these things as a son of Belial, you see. And by the way, think about another illustration. You've got two apostles in the New Testament. You've got James and John, sons of Zebedee. What were they called? Does anybody remember what they were called? Sons of Thunder. Right? These, these guys were pretty uh, aggressive, right? Sons of thunder. And uh, how about another example? What about Barnabas? What was Barnabas known for? Encouragement, right? Uh, comfort, encouraging. That was, that was Barnabas. And so he was known as, I think in Acts 4 we read a couple weeks ago, son of consolation, right? And so we understand to say someone is a son of this or that, is to say that their nature or their character lines up with this. Seems to have been born of that, we would say it that way. And so you've got sons of light where that dominant influence is the life that is in the light. It's an influence which characterizes our nature, and that nature is light. Light is on the, by the way, it's the mental side. It's We know the truth, and light is on the Moral side, because we live the truth. That's that's the the connection there. And so Paul carries out this contrast. Day, he uses day as in the realm of that which light dominates. Look outside, light is dominating the day, right? It dominates the day. Night is where dark is dominant. So we're not only sons of light, but we're sons of day. That's our nature. That's who we are. It's our, it, it is in our nature to be in darkness, and the reason why it's not in our nature to be in darkness is because we have a new nature. If we are born from above, born again, we have a new nature. The old things have passed away. You used to be a son of darkness. Now you're a son of light. New things have come. And so it isn't in our nature to be caught in the day of the Lord. It's completely inconsistent with who we are. We live in a completely different sphere and you know, we also have to recognize something. Let me just say this as a side note. We have to recognize this as well. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. It is not with the individual who is living in darkness. It's with the, it's with the powers and the principalities that are behind that darkness. Right? If you think about it, they're just a pawn of Satan. You ever thought about it that way? They're a tool of Satan. So we live in a completely different sphere. At the same time, we understand, and we saw this this morning play out in our Sunday school, we are really uh, at a point in our life where sin has no dominion in our life. We are granted the provisions to escape temptation. 
We are granted that. We know the gospel. We know sanctifying truth. We are given the mind of Christ. The light is where? It's in us. It's in us. It's in the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So we have no condemnation. We face no condemnation. We won't experience the full fury of God's wrath, and the day of the Lord has nothing to do with us. Why? Because we're different. And our life is hidden with Christ in God, and our life has to be different because of that. There's no need to fear missing the future glory, or the catching up, or being caught off guard by being caught up in the day of the Lord. As we'll sing in our closing hymn today, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. And that last stanza, there's no guilt in life, there's no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. And of course, we understand this distinctiveness comes out because of our new nature and our behavior. And so it's all consistent with our nature. It's in the manifest behavior. And that should be really to us a confirming confidence. It should be a confirming evidence of our security in Christ. I think that's why, I don't think, I would say theologically, I know that's why Paul said that our our confidence, our assurance of salvation comes in the Spirit of God. Amen. He's the one that confirms with us that we are sons of God, right? Romans 8. And so that follows right on the first theme that's linked with these words. Look at verse 6 of our text. Good reminder of the relationship between your identity in Christ and and, and your conduct and your nature and your behavior Because here he begins in verse 6 by saying, so then, so then, those two are, 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 you can't separate those. They're inseparably linked. They're all throughout the New Testament. And so what we are dictates how we act. So then, verse 6, let us not sleep as others, others being unbelievers do, but let us be alert and sober. And why is that? Because it's fixed. Our nature is fixed. It's fixed. This is another reason why you don't lose your salvation if you're truly born again. It's fixed by the transforming and regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And even though we are day people, we still live in a body of unredeemed human flesh. But so even as day people, it's possible for us to have some nightlife, isn't it? That can happen. But it's not our practice. We practice the truth. We practice living in the light. But he adds another component here. We've been talking about night. We talked about darkness. But he adds another component here, and that's sleep. Interesting. Unregenerate are in the night. The night is pitch black, and they're asleep. Can I just say that kind of compounds their insensitivity, doesn't it? Compounds their ignorance. It compounds their fallenness. It's night, it's pitch black, that's doubly bad. But the worst part is, is they're in a coma. They're insensitive, they're unable to be sensible to spiritual realities. And so this other angle is added in verse 7, if you'll look at it when he talks about drunkenness. You want to see the depth of insensitivity? You want to see the depth of the insensitivity of the unregenerate? You, you see the compounding of those four concepts. You've got them. You've got night in them. The pitch black. They're asleep. They're in a drunken stupor. We have nothing to do with that kind of life. Why? Because we're of the day. And it wouldn't even be... It, it would just be ridiculous for us to conduct ourselves as if we're night people. It would just be ridiculous. It would be foolish. Turn to Romans 13 for a moment. Because that's his whole exhortation here. Romans 13. And the point is day people shouldn't act like night people. That's not the pattern of your life. So why interrupt the normal righteous pattern with nightlife? It's not a place for night. You know what? Um, I told my kids growing up, there's no, there's no reason for you to be out after after a certain hour. Nothing good happens after a certain hour. You ever hear that? You ever say that? Nothing good happens after a certain hour. Yeah? Some of you are nodding. But it's true. Romans 13, pick up in verse 12. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but, as a contrast, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Pretty clear. And by the way, night people are in the pitch black and they're in a coma and they're drunk, but they are wide awake in the flesh. They're wide awake in the flesh. They're dead asleep to spiritual realities, but they're wide awake when it comes to the flesh. And so don't conduct yourselves like night people. And that contrast, he's not threatening them by saying that if you mess up, you'll be like night, you'll be the night people. And you'll be subjected to the wrath of God. And that's not what he is saying. He is saying he moves us by a sense of something. And that's spiritual dignity. You have a spiritual dignity. You're a child of the king. And by the way, if you're a child of the king, go out and live like one. That's what he is saying. And he would, he, he's saying you wouldn't want to do this. You wouldn't want to live this way, would you? By, by the way, you're, you're day people. You belong to God, and he kind of lifts up the motive, the incentive for you and me to to the point of dignity and honor. Why do we do that? Because we say we're a child of the king. We're of God. I'm a child of the day. I'm a son of the light. I don't act like that. There's no place for, for that kind of life among his people. We're above that. Not in a haughty way, not in a proud way. That's not what he's saying. He's saying... In contrast, there's just no place for nightlife among day people. We're above that. I think MacArthur made that point very clear in his commentary on this section. And, and I think it was beautifully said because he, he makes this comment. He says, by God's grace and power of God's spirit, we say no to carousing of the flesh, its sensual desires, sexual promiscuity, strife and jealousy. And we say yes to the day, to virtue, to purity. That harkens me back to what Paul says in Philippians 4. You know, think on these things, whichever is good and right and lovely and of good repute, right? Think on these things. Set your mind on those things. And so in putting on the armor of light, we put on the character, we put on the conduct of Christ. And that's because conduct demonstrates condition. It demonstrates your character. Don't sleep as others do. They sleep during the day because they're out carousing all night. Remember Matthew 24 where Jesus said if the head of the house knew what time the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert. They won't be alert. They're going to be shouting peace and safety, but they're going to be asleep. They're going to be asleep. And why don't you want to be asleep? You don't want to be spiritually witless. You want to be spiritually aware. You don't want to be spiritually unaware, unwary. You want to truly be awake. You want to be awake to the spiritual realities, beloved. That's the point. And the analogy is those who are night people are the ones who sleep during the day. I'm sure if Gunnar or Colton or somebody had a testimony along that line, you probably know that from being out policing. You know that from what you see go on at night. And the sleep is, the sleep that he's referring to, the contrast of being sleep, is a spiritual indifference. There are people who could care less about the things of God. There's no fear of God in their sight. They're living as if there's no judgment. They're asleep. They can't see the truth. They can't. We'll see that a little bit further in our text in 1 Corinthians 2 when we get into that a little bit beginning this week. They can't live in virtue. They aren't even aware. By the way, they're not even aware the judgment is coming. They're tuned out. They're living their lives as if there'd be no judgment of God. They're living lives as if there never was a God. We expect the night people to do that. We expect them really to be insensitive to those things. And I think this is part of our comfort too as a church, as a people of God. You and I, we consider ourselves day people. The comfort here is if I'm living the nightlife, I'm going to lose my confidence that I'm a day person. But the confidence doesn't come because I live that. It doesn't, I don't live that way. And so the confidence comes because I do live as a child of the king. The spirit testifies that we are child of God. And he testifies because that's who we are and he resides in us. 
And when my life is characterized by righteousness, there's a confidence there. There's a confidence there when you overcome temptation in your life, right? There's a confidence there when you do the right thing for Christ, when you're glorifying God in whatever action you're partaking in. There's a confidence there. Not because you're being a moral person, but because of the Spirit of God working and moving in you. And so when my life is characterized by unrighteousness, well, then I should begin to question, really, who do I belong to? Whether I'm a day person, am I a night person? Whether I escape the day of the Lord or not, I, it's not possible for us to be caught up in the day of the Lord. It's possible for sinning ones to think they might be because confidence can be lost. And you know, that confidence is lost when we're operating in the flesh. It really can be lost. And if you want to be comforted, if you want to be encouraged, if you want to be strengthened, you want to have hope, you're living as day people. And so salvation carries with it instructions about certain things. We, we deny ungodliness. We, we put aside the deeds of the flesh. We put aside worldly desires and living sensuously and not living in an unrighteous and ungodly way. And you know, that's what makes us look different to the world. It really does. I was watching an interview with, uh, you see the two pastors who were arrested in Canada. There were three. One, one was a little bit kind of over the top in his denouncing the uh, authorities. Did you, did you see that one? But the other two, Pastor James Coates and uh, Daniel, uh, Pastor Daniels, the other guy from the Baptist Church in, in um, Alberta. What godly men... What God, you can, there's just so distinct between them going through that process and their remarks. And uh, if you did not see the interview with James Coates, uh, Justin Peters interviewed uh, James. Did any, how many saw that? Okay, most of you didn't. You gotta watch that because he was saying about what it was like in, in the maximum security jail for 35 days and yet how things began to turn and how people saw him differently because he was, uh, now he didn't use these terms, but he was a day person. Right? Watch that. It's a marvelous, a beautiful testimony for Christ. So what it, salvation carries with it instructions about all these things and you see our ability to look for that blessed hope, isn't it? Because of that glorious appearing we want to live holy lives. By the way, uh, Eric, do you know what your last name means? If not, you're going to learn real quick. It's the Greek word that's used in this text. Gregory, which we get the name Gregory. Do you know? You don't know? I'm going to tell you. It literally means be alert, be awake. That's what your name means. It comes from the Greek word Gregory. And so that's what the word is used here. So what's going on is in the spiritual dimension, the truths, the virtues, and so on, be awake to those things. Don't be sleeping. Don't be slumbering. Don't be witless. And let me remind you what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revealing, at the apocalypsis, at the revealing. Same kind of injunction, same kind of command. Get your mind together. Get your act together. Get your mind together so you can see that truth and perceive that truth. Be sober in spirit and you'll have hope in the coming of Christ with no fear. And so in looking to the future, Peter says again in Second Peter 3, by the way, he says you realize what's going to happen in the end. You see the day of the Lord coming. You ought to be found in peace. You ought to be found spotless and blameless, waiting for the Lord to reveal himself. And so be on the alert. Be awake. Not living in some inebriated condition or stupor of sleep. But then he adds that word sober, free from influence of intoxicants. I think that's another striking thing. We live in such a, an amazing time today where now... Uh, being stoned or high or drunk is just a normal way of life for most people. Uh, you, I, I don't know about you, you can barely walk in a store without smelling something like that or even driving down the road, somebody in front of you exhales and, you know, your car smells like, uh, you know, something from the set of Cheech and Chong. But uh, it's true. And now there's no shame in that. There's no shame. Well, it's legal now. Well, there's no shame in that anymore. And so 
he extends that illustration simply because he's talking about that same kind of thing. He's that same kind of sleep in their drunkenness. And it's just another way to define their insensitivity. That's all. And this call to be sober means that we are something under self-control. Do you have the proper balance in your life? Are you under self-control? you maintaining a settled confidence? Do you have your priorities laid out? Are they filled with spiritual and moral seriousness? Are you being zealous for the things that are true and right and good and pure? also means we're not overexcited. We're not indifferent. We're not insane. We are sane. And, of course, there's a right balance there, and there's a proper balance. And it's a consistent, there's a calm, steady spirituality. I sometimes see people who are professing believers who are so schizophrenic. And for the life of me, it's very puzzling to me because there's no settled confidence in the things of God. I don't know why. If we have a steady spiritualness, And a confidence in those things, that should show in our actions. That should show in our lives. Hendrickson says this, and and I'm going to quote William Hendrickson. I think it's a very good quote. He says, the sober person lives deeply. His pleasures are not primarily those of the senses, like the pleasures of the drunkard, for instance, but those of the soul. He is by no means a stoic. On the contrary, with a full measure of joyful anticipation, he looks forward to the return of the Lord, but he doesn't run away from his task. He says, the apostle's exhortation then amounts to this. Let us not be lax and unprepared, but let us be prepared. Being spiritually alert, firm in the faith, courageous, strong, calmly, but with glad anticipation looking forward to the future day. Let us moreover do all this because we belong to the day and not to the night. End quote. We are to live like day people. Live like day people. What does that mean? You're alert, you're awake, you're balanced, you're godly, you're under control by the truth. You're not sleeping drunkards of the dark night who are just going to be jolted out of their self-induced coma by the day of the Lord. And by the way, all the senses in the, in the verbs here in this text, all of the verbs here, they're in the present tense. The church at Thessalonica was told to live continuously these kind of lives. You and I are told to continuously live this kind of life. Why? Because we're not going to experience the day of the Lord. Our joyful expectation is the fact that we're going to be with him. We're not going to be on the other side of his wrath. And so what an elevated motive that should be for you and for me. This is the highest call. And by the way, this is the calling, like Paul says in Ephesians 4, he begins in Ephesians 4.1, with the worthy walk. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Not out of fear. Not out of arrogance, but out of the nobility of spiritual identity. Child of the king. An heir with Christ. We're different. We live in a completely different way. These are patterns of behavior that characterize us. We're not night people. I'm going to close with this text. Turn to Luke 12. Luke chapter 12. I want to read quite a bit there. You'll know exactly where this is going. Luke chapter 12. In fact, it's so serious that even after Paul said all of the things he said in the first letter, he apparently had to write a second one to tell them again that they're not going to miss the day of the Lord. They're not going to be part of the day of the Lord. Luke 12 Pick up in verse 35. Our Lord says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you, that he will gird himself to serve. And have them recline at the table and we'll come up and wait on them. 
Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third, he finds them so. Blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed the house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants, to give them their their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and to drink and to get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Is that frightening? And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. To whom much is given, much is required. You granted the salvation and being a child of the king are granted much. Much is required. And as day people, if we could say it that way, as commentators put it, we're to act like that. It's our nature. It's our behavior. And don't miss this. It's our destiny. Verse 9 of our text. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our future is all light. It's all day. And when the day star comes and the dawning of the eternal rise, we'll reach that destiny which we were redeemed in the past for. We are sustained in the present for. And we will be glorified in the future for. This is a marvelous thing, beloved. Don't, don't reject, don't dismiss the calling of God and the calling of repentance that he would grant you the gift of repentance leading to faith, that you would be characterized as one who lives in the light and not one who lives like a drunken, insubordinate, spiritually insensitive schizophrenic who has no standing in the Lord. If Christ is your king, if Christ is the Lord, get out and act like that. Start living for him. Father, thank you. Thank and praise you, Lord, for the marvelous truth that this text reveals. One in which that is so clear that anybody reading this has no doubt about what this says. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified in all we do and say and that this text would be deeply, deeply embedded in our hearts and in our minds as we encourage one another in these things. We thank and praise you and love you for your name's sake as well. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen.